Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. We're kicking it old school today, it's just me and my buddy, Three Moves Ahead founder, Troy Goodfellow. Troy, welcome back to the show. It is always good to be back uh, where I belong. I miss the place when I'm not on it, especially when you guys are talking about games that I love, like EU4. Yeah, you know, and, and one of the things that uh, I, I've really been loving in EU4, and I think it's sort of uh, a, a point of departure f- for this show, is, uh, you know, the Rebels with a Cause uh, feature that was touted a little bit during the, uh, you know, development cycle. And I'm finding I'm really enjoying it. And, uh, you know, I, I it got, you know, I know you were thinking about sort of discussing how we, uh, you know, how various games model Rebels and Dissenters and Discontent. And, uh, you know, with my experience in, in EU4, Four, I, I, I gotta admit, I, I do find that giving rebellion a little more character is, you know, kind of important to me in terms of like fleshing out a strategy world. Yeah, I mean, that's really one of the reasons I recommended this as a topic was my own experiences in playing EU four. Um, it is, I mean, rebels have always been in the EU games and in the paradox games, but I think uh, what EU four has done. Uh, we'll talk a bit about the. I'll talk a little bit later about the history of Rebels in the series because it really has changed from game to game to game. But I'm finding an EU4. I mean, just to remind people, this is a game that I have done PR work for. But since I've been championing Paradox games from like the beginning of my career, no one can say I'm really a dishonest chill about them. Uh, but EU4 is one of the few games where I've actually had to see Rebels as a force to be reckoned with, and not just a minor nuisance. Where I've had to surrender and give up, you know, give up the Ukraine because I'm too busy doing other crap to put down these tens of thousands of rebels. Um, and I think uh, what EU4 has kind of set up is what it brought to my mind when I think about rebels' throw strategy games. You think about rebels and dissent. I mean, let's bring dissent and discontent into this, bring it quite widely. Uh, there are two ways, really, of understanding rebels and discontent in strategy games. One way, they are just a sign you are doing something wrong. That something is missing, uh, you need to build something else to fix it, you need to acquire a certain good, you're building too fast, you don't have enough money. Rebels are just in a, a, a big klaxon that you're screwing up, you're screwing up, fix this, fix this. Um, in other games, and I think in Victoria and EU4 and in, um, I think of board games uh, like Republic to Rome um, and other games like that, Rebels are part of the system. They are something you can't avoid dealing with. They are a natural outgrowth of game mechanics. You have to handle them, but just because they pop up, it doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. They're a fact of life. So I think it's important, I think, to keep this sort of thing in mind, comparing, you know, getting voted out of office in SimCity or riots in Caesar 3 or even the happiness mechanic in Civilization, which is usually a sign you're just going too fast and you need to do some backsliding to get that sort of stuff under control versus, you know, the rebels in Victoria 2, which is just a changing of the times. You can't progress through Victoria 2 without there being rebels. It's impossible for you not to have rebels because that's one of the system designs. Um, So I think understanding rebels in these two different ways might help us contextualize how strategy games have thought of dissent and discontent. Yeah, you know, I think at the, at the most at the at the most baseline level, I, I think you're right that um, you know rebels are just kind of this uh, you know negative force, uh, you know, just sort of a break on your progress. And I think where where they can be worst is when they turn into a sort of uh, 
you know, game of whack-a-mole that you end up playing where it's just like, okay, you know, every single, you know, every time you turn around, there's something else you've got to, you know, turn around and deal with. Uh, and I, I think uh, the, the Total War series, you know, has, has tended to fall back on, on this model, at least, where just every once in a while, you've got an uprising, yeah. and really, it just exists there to drag your attention somewhere else, to basically force you to pay in terms of time and attention to address a problem that takes your eyes off the main task. And, you know, while that can be an interesting sort of, that can be a cool sort of pushback, uh, I, I do find that when, when Rebels, there, there's a fine line that Rebel mechanics uh, walk between being, uh, you know, a really, a, a really effective sort of pushback that gets you thinking about how you're managing your empire and, uh, you know, how you should be, how, how you're prioritizing things, and then just having them be a nuisance designed to trip you up. Yeah, the Total War games, that's really so many of the problems in the Total War series, as you look at them at the strategic level, and I think the Rebels are a really good example of that, is they do just throw things up in many ways to stop the inevitable player victory. Um, until really Shogun 2, the strategic AI was never good enough uh, to stop a human player. So they would... So diplomatic, you could have really great diplomatic relations with all of your neighbors except your enemy, but then, oh, you're too strong, so there's a random war that's going to start. Uh, and rebels were often like that, too. Uh, there was often, they would, you could have starvation for years and not have a rebel army, but then you're doing really well. Oh, now there's a rebel army. Um, when you're at the height of your power, there's this huge rebel army in your home province because you've had a couple of bad harvests. Or something. Um, well, it could be really egregious too. I remember yep. vividly a game of uh, Medieval One that I was playing. Is the Byzantines? And they were kind of an overpowered faction to begin with. But I had actually got it. You know, it's coming in on the closing. You know, like fifty turns or so, maybe maybe even closer than that. But I had basically the entire map locked down, and I'd upgraded every province. You know, with the uh, you know things that tamp down unrest and everything. And just out of the blue, you know, during the, that final stretch, suddenly, you know, there was a hotkey that you could press that made the map turn colors based on rebellion risk the yes. turn before had been solid green like there's no there was no risk of anything going wrong within the empire i hit and turn the next turn suddenly everything was like red to yellow and it was like what the hell just happened here well it, it, it you know it was pretty clear that, that at that point the, the game sort of had a last minute you know pushback uh you know built into it that if you were if you were so far ahead it was just going to like just turn your game over uh, yeah. at the last second to try to stop you. Uh, and I, I think that's a particularly egregious example, but I think you see it uh, used in... So there, there's softer versions of that, but it's, it's the same thing, where, yeah, it's you're exactly right. It's just, okay, look, the player's probably going to... If, if the player is just going to power through this without any sort of effective opposition, uh, you know, it's not going to be an interesting game. So we've got to keep... You know, we, it, you know it's almost like Harrison... Uh, what was that Vonnegut story? Uh, Harrison Bergeron? Yeah, yeah. It, it, that, the, that's what that's how rebels function in games like that, and that's that's one that's one mode they can take. Yeah, so that's that's that's, that's I guess the third way of using rebels, just rebels as a as a break on a player who's too strong or too powerful, and that you don't see that a whole lot. Um, you'd see it time to time um, in games. I'm trying to think of. I can't think of it right now, but I'm I'm, I'm sure I've seen it in some sci-fi 4x games. Which, as you and Paul talked about a couple of months ago, one of I think one of our one of my favorite shows of the last year, you know how because of the way players can design ships, it often becomes very easy for the player to just exploit all of these shipbuilding mechanics and take over the world. Uh, there are these sorts of 
various types of discontent sown throughout the universe uh, to slow down your power at a stupid rate. Um, so I, I think I see that quite a bit more in some sci-fi games. I, I'm trying to think of the one I have in mind, but they do all tend to blur together after a while. Well, yeah, and actually, I, uh, you know, since you brought up the sci-fi example, I think it's worth discussing that in a little more detail because mm-hmm. I think the failures of a lot of sci-fi games can sort of... When, when I think about things that particularly disappoint me in, in their sort of universe building and the sense that I get for, you know, where, where it doesn't feel like I'm running an empire, but just sort of solving an abstract management problem, I, I think where I sort of begin to feel a little bit detached from it is that often discontent and rebellion is so fuzzy. It, it, it's so indistinct. It's just like this planet is unhappy but there's no sense of anyone actually living on that planet. It's just you haven't built enough like happiness structures or something, and the entire right. like it's just it's just going to start causing troubles. Like I, I remember, I think it took me forever to even realize that endless space. I, I think had um, had some had some happiness uh, mechanics and built built into it, like with 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 the the well being of your people. But it, it had no it had no meaning in that universe. You know, it just it, you, it didn't feel real. Uh, whereas you know, to go back to a game like Alpha Centauri, the structures you're building and the way discontent manifests itself there, and just through some of the thematic, uh, you know, chrome they added onto that game, you sort of had a sense, at least, for what life was like on this planet, what you were actually trying, what, what needs you were responding to when you were building this stuff. And so you got a sense for, you know, okay, I am commanding a faction on this distant colony world of Alpha Centauri, not just running you know, all these little abstract nodes with, you know, little little population figures that occasionally turn red and get angry at me. I mean, yeah, I mean, Alpha Centauri had, had did have, I think a lot of Alpha Centauri did have to do with the theme uh, and how it worked so well, because it that model, I mean, that's sort of the civilization model of the time. Uh, if you look at Civ 1 and Civ 2, I think Civ 1 is probably the first grand strategy game I played that had happiness as a major mechanic. Uh, but how did you control happiness? You just built religious buildings, so it's the opiate of the masses after all, or put in troops, and that's how you control happiness. And the penalties were production. The city would just be useless for a while. Um, and Civ II carried that on with the possibility of cities flipping if they were too unhappy for too long. But it was all just tied to your structures, your military presence, and your government type. Certain mm-hmm. government types had certain options. But it was really a bare-bones idea of what, you know unhappiness meant. You didn't have a sense of, well, these people really just don't like my government. There just aren't enough coliseums. There just aren't enough temples. The idea is that to keep the, the rebellions and the discontent is all about Keeping is all about happiness. It's all about luxury in many ways. I mean, you could hire you could hire Elvises in Civ One and Two, to you would just pick up a to take a worker off the tiles around the city, and he would be an Elvis, and the Elvis would entertain people, and he'd be happy. Yes, your city would be less productive and have less food, less science, but at least it wouldn't be rebelling. Um, and there was no sense that your city had any distinct personality. It was just too big. At a certain point, your city was so big it just couldn't get any happier. Um, they would always the new every new citizen would be un, would be unhappy would be upset. Uh, this was actually quite a, a new way of looking at grand strategy games. There really wasn't a happiness concern before. Um, 
and it didn't matter if they were conquered peoples or not. Cities didn't necessarily take time to acclimate. That was an idea that wasn't introduced until I think Civ three. The idea that cities had cultures and the culture of a city was somehow connected to how happy it would be. Um, that was relatively late in the Civ cycle. Um, so you look at Alpha Centauri, how it used all these Civ, these really traditional Civ mechanics, but still made discontent um, feel sort of real because I think so much of it was the power of that game itself, the power of the game world that you could tell yourself these people weren't going to be happy anyway because none of those cultures are a culture any of us would want to live in. I don't think any of we actually, actually ever actually fooled ourselves into thinking we were building a utopia with the Morganites or the Gaians or yeah, Miriam. So the UN guys were sort of the good guys, I guess, private laws people, but you always got the sense they were sort of, first of all, chum dropped into a shark tank. Yeah, but second, you always got the sense that maybe Proven wasn't necessarily as good a guy as he seemed either. You know what yeah, I mean? N- like n- nobody ever s- mentions them as their favorite faction. Yeah, no one ever because they're like the default. They're the balanced guys, you know. But no one ever says, "Well, I loved playing the I loved playing the peacekeepers," um, even though they were an important part of the whole mythology. You need that stable core group, I guess. You need that default. Um, but really. Uh, you, the, the 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 power of the story and the power of the setting, I think, in many ways, turned those rather basic mechanics because they were again really based on you know technology and your faction uh, beliefs could affect the types of like if you were the Gaians and you built a, a borehole uh, in your city, yes. your people would be your city would be really powerful, but also really really pissed off. Um, yeah. said so to be careful what you did. So there was this sense that your population had personality. Now, I forget. What would happen if you did that and you were con- and that city was conquered by the Morganites? They weren't still Gaians. They just become no, Morganites. I think, no, I think it flipped. The yeah. moment, I think it was an ownership. So like Civ two, yeah. ownership flips, everything flips to the new owner. Now, the new owner might have a culture, but yeah, they're not Gaians anymore, I don't right. think. Yeah, so that sort of took away from mythology, but while you were playing that city, you did have to keep these things under cons- under control. You did have to understand what made your people happy, uh, and because each culture was distinct like that, um, and did have things they did not like. Well, and you know, as simple as simple as that was, to even even the Civ Two model, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's there was. You know, you didn't need to actually get. You don't necessarily need to get too detailed about how rebels actually work to make an entire game about rebels. In fact, right. in many ways, like the, since they're not the main focus of your game in just about any case, you know, it kind of behooves you not to get too too interested right. in, in what's going on with unhappiness and rebellion. But one of the things I, I enjoyed about Civ is if you sort of if you sort of looked at like what Civ Civ Two was saying after your point was that. Society Society in the modern age eventually hits a point where it is being held together by the threat of armed force. That is kind, you know. That is yeah. that is the end point of your civilization. Is yeah. that cities are going to get unhappy, and at, at a certain point, all you can do is garrison them and keep that happiness tamped down. And uh, you know, and and the yeah, like you said, the the civilizations themselves are almost agnostic. I remember fighting war with the uh, with Egypt uh, as the Greeks, and finally like beating them after just a long knockdown drag out fight, and discovering that you know yes, they they've been the largest empire, and everyone was pissed off. Suddenly, I had like you know twenty new cities that were in complete revolt, 
and I had to spend like a generation just sending troops into these things to put down the disorder. Um, and you know, that's not that it wasn't even a difficult decision. It was kind of an obvious, like, Oh, here's the thing that's happening to your empire. Here's your easy fix. And yet, there was something kind of there was something kind of nifty about the way I felt constrained into. I could always I could always ignore the problem a little bit, uh, but but in the end, the the it was just a question of when you would eventually address it with the carrot and stick. You know, the carrot being you know reduced productivity via entertainers, and the stick being uh, costly military occupations. It was really just a matter of when you would get around to doing that and restoring order in your in your empire. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't really ignore it for too long because those alerts at the beginning of every term that your city was rioting were such a pain in the ass. Oh, my God. Uh, I, I still see that picture, right? The, oh, yeah. The, the, the soldier go home picture from the 60s that yep. like, would pop up. Oh, my God. That's one of the, that was, I mean, that game had so many great uh, multimedia touches, which is another thing we should probably do a show on sometime is multi, the use of multimedia in strategy games. But that's uh, another show for another time. Um, I really, and. There was the other element of Rebels in Civ Two, which is not missed much, and that is p- p- partisans. Yeah. Where if you would take over a new city, I mean, not like yeah, the city may have flipped to you, but after uh, the Industrial Age or after one of the ages, I think it was remember, a tech you discovered, right? Yeah, once you discovered that tech or the other culture discovered, there was a chance that the new city could be surrounded by partisans by guerrillas who would just attack your troops and be annoying and destroy roads. Um, They weren't especially powerful, but they were certainly a frustrating uh, new thing in Civ 2. They've made noise of bringing them back from time to time. Uh, But that that was really as close as they got to having, you know, national rebels. Uh, There are these bitter enders uh, hanging on, refusing to accept the new world order. You know, it was a really interesting, um, you know, I'd forgotten about that, but it was an interesting idea that I don't think panned out, uh, and I would love to see it revisited again, because my memory of it is basically they were a average strength infantry unit, that if they spawned out of the city and, like, took, if it was near the hills or mountains or something, then you might have a problem on your hands. Then it might yeah. take a while to clear those guys out, as, as you know, rebels are wont to do. But the problem is, in most cases, they just spawn out, and you'd spend an extra turn just sort of swatting them down. Uh, and they wouldn't really vanish into the hills. There was no sense of, okay, these guys are disappearing and hitting targets of opportunity. They would really just, like, pop up next to the city and not move until you killed them, really. Or occasionally they'd steal the city out from under you if you screwed up and forgot to leave a unit on a garrison. Uh, and then somehow they'd get a tech out of it, and it was infuriating because, you know, how the hell did these rebels, you know, did they bring a lab with them? Uh, <laughs> nevertheless, uh, it was an interesting idea, and, you know, not one that I can really think... In terms of, in terms of like national resistance like that, I'm I'm kind of having trouble thinking of a game where that's been used extensively. EU4 does a variation on it, yeah. Uh, but it, it, but it, you know, it, it's not quite the same as having like you know, sort of a Viet Minh, you know, partisans slowly taking over the countryside game. Uh, but of course, we talked about on the show the the lack of truly great like counterinsurgency games, uh, or insurgency games for that matter. Yeah. Uh, so it, you know, it's it's if you were going to get if you're going to go further with a mechanic like that, 
again, it becomes one of those things where it almost has to become the focus of the game. Like, the more detailed you make, like, the cause of the partisans, the more you're taking the player away from other things that maybe they want to be doing more. Yeah, I don't think we're going to be advocating, you know, that we turn these grand strategy games into Castro in the Hills uh, simulations. Um, I mean, one of the really weird things about the partisan mechanic in Civ 2 was that it was easy to avoid because it could only spawn inside city tiles. So just before you conquer the city, you put one of your soldiers on almost all the city tiles, and then no partisans spring up. So it was... You know, nice and easy to avoid like that. Or you put all the, or you make sure all the partisans get channeled on one tile because that was in the days of super stacking, but you kill one unit in the stack, you kill all of the units. So that was so yeah. much fun in Civ 2. So there was, there were certainly ways around that, but it was the first time that there was, I guess, an attempt in civilization to show there are consequences for taking over a foreign city even if they're very small and they're more nuisances than anything else. It was, you know, that and the Civil War mechanic, which uh, has not been reintroduced uh, in the Civ series at all, where you took a capital city and then it's if there was still room for another civilization, that conquered Civ would split into two. And you'd get two Civ, then they'd start fighting each other, uh, wow. which I always thought was kind of cool, but also just made your job a lot easier because they were fighting a much smaller too much smaller enemies. So those were really as far as they got in, you know, building, you know, rebel co- consequences uh, for expanding uh, too quickly. Uh, but the get part of the mechanic was it was it was neat, and I think it was um, an interesting idea, and it's something that I don't think you could do in the current Civ Five model because of the way that the single unit per tile thing works that it just would be too easy to exploit and channel, or just be way too difficult and annoying. Um, but it was certainly um, something kind of neat at the time. When it first happened to me, I was like, what the hell is this? Because uh, I played so much of the first Civ, I did not expect to see something like that. Yeah, yeah, I remember I'd read enough previews of it that I was like, oh boy, here come the partisans. Uh, and at first it was really cool, but eventually it just became sort of a... Um well, after you hit a certain point in tech, right? Like you had armor standing by and parachutists or whatever, and yeah. the partisans would spawn. It's just like, okay, just go kill them, guys. Whatever. <laughs> Deal. Um, yeah, and, and then the Austintari thing introduced, like, the idea of the disproportionate response uh, to civil unrest, uh, where you had the sort of big red button uh, for nerve stapling, which I still don't know exactly what that is, but it doesn't sound good. Uh but, I think yeah, it's a, that's a high-tech lobotomy, I think. Yeah, well, the fact that they call them drone riots, right? Like, there's something really nasty implied just by... And just by the fact that it's not civil unrest, it's a drone riot. Like, what What in the hell does that mean? Because I know we didn't send drones to Alpha Centauri, but suddenly there's a class of people, they're drones, they're rebelling. Uh, and you can nerve-staple them. Uh, which, yeah, just sounds, it just sounds a little worrisome. And it was kind of this... Uh, you know, I mean, if you were just, if you were just playing, uh, you know, like you weren't screwing around, and you had the muscle to back it up, you could you could just hit that button, and uh, you you you'd gut your international reputation, and uh, you you you'd restore order at a cost of some productivity, but it was a fast way to put things back under control. Yeah, I don't think I ever use nerve stapling. I mean, I tend to play games relatively morally. I mean, I'll talk a little bit later about my 
immoral actions regarding rebels uh, in a bit. But generally, I try to play relatively morally in games. So I never, but I saw so never nerve stapled. But sometimes it got quite tempting because sometimes it was it would have been so much easier than building another holodeck or whatever they called it, a play dome uh, or something. Um, because you don't have the money, you don't have the time, you're fighting a war. So I understood the temptation to do it, but I always managed to resist that. Yeah, I never felt... I only did it actually like a handful of times. Uh, just because... I mean, for instance, like I, for the same reason I could never really play Chairman Yang... Yeah, I couldn't really nerve staple people. Yeah, I, like, I, 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 just, I, 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 I think Bruce Garrick has a nerve stapling button <laughs> at, at his desk. I, if any of us, I think would be a nerve stapler. Well, that's actually why I took up neurosurgery. He was he, he had a, he had another career going. He played uh, he played Alpha Centauri, and he was like nerve stapling. You say, yeah. and you know, Doctor Garrick was born, uh, and we will soon enter his nightmarish dystopia uh, any day now. <laughs> but it, it it was it it was it was a neat it was, it was a neat option and and something not replicated too often is that it was sort of this two tiered response to rebellion where you could have the normal look you have to address the root causes of this either there's not enough like uh, order buildings in your city or not enough like troops or not enough entertainment maybe a combination of whatever little cocktail keeps your people in line uh, but if you don't want to play that entire you know resource resource management mini game uh, not mini game in this case it's 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 half the damn game really uh, but if you if you don't feel like fine-tuning that balance so much there is another way to handle rebellion uh, and I think we see that carried over a little bit in the total wars as, as those went on and really began offering, um, multi-pronged responses to rebellion. And the problem there is I think total war tended to get a little too carried away with how fun and effective, uh, Machiavellian evil could be. Yeah. There's, there are a lot of problems, uh, with the way that total war has progressed, uh, dealt with rebellion, especially into the Rome uh, and medieval two periods. I mean, first, in Rome, it was just, so rebellions could be a very huge problem. They could kick your army out and spawn a new large army, and you have to take the city back. Uh, so if you didn't, if you had a dissatisfied population, because, you know, once you sacked a city, half the Happiness buildings would be broken. You have more armies out in the field you have to destroy, but you have to keep your army back to keep the population happy. This is a game about fighting battles. And if my armies spend half their goddamn time in the city, you know, making sure that the peasants aren't burning the place down, then I'm not playing a total war game, really. I'm playing, you know, a, 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 I'm playing Sim Cairo. I'm playing a police action just to keep people off the streets. I'm not out there beating Carthaginian heads uh, like I should be. So the effect of the game, and I'm not sure, I'm sure this is completely unintentional, but I'm sure you are just like me, and this is one of the evil things that became routine for me, is I would put this. I would put every city I conquered to the sword. There was no incentive not to. None. Absolutely, I was. You would kill half the population, but you would get rid of all of your health, all of your problems caused by overpopulation, by discontent. You could have, have a smaller army there to keep order while you repaired all your buildings. There was no incentive to. You know, okay, I want to work with these people. I want to bring them in. I want to keep their productivity and their taxes. No, you're better off just yelling everyone to a cross 
and having your army keep marching through Anatolia or wherever it's heading. Well, and it gave rise to some really perverse uh, strategies. Yeah. Because if you remember, the Romans were the only ones with the highest tier techs, really. Well, maybe maybe the Greeks had some high tech stuff too, as well, because they were they were also civilized. But if you were playing like a you know barbarian faction, like a Germanic tribe, right. um, you didn't have anywhere near as much access to things to deal with overcrowding and health problems. Right. So you were going to actually be dealing with rebellion a lot more, which meant that your army kind of always had to be sort of scattered so it could descend on people and, and kill them all. But what I ended up doing was it was really inconvenient to keep feeding occupation armies in to keep a city under wraps and rebellions happening of their own accord was really inconvenient because then God knows where, where I'd be when that happened. So what it's, what you start doing is you'd pull all your troops out, park them outside the city and just wait for nature to take, take its course. Just wait for the rebellion to hit, put it, you know, put it under siege, take the city back, put it to the sword again. You know, and you basically, you know, you just like, you know, every, every, like every few years, you're basically like harvesting your citizens, uh, you know, the, these doing these regular callings, which, you know, uh, I, I guess, you know, almost sounds cool from a mustache twirling evil sort of way. But in practice, it was just awful. Yeah. Well, I did that in the European universe. I one. Yeah, you know, I was talking. I was talking to, uh, to 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 Thomas Johansson about this as well, and he was talking about how there was they, they, that users discovered in either EU one or EU two that you could basically depopulate provinces uh, just by having uh, rebels uh, pop up over and over again, and you could change the demography of it just by killing the shit out of them. Yeah, this was EU two, because it was especially important if you were the Spanish and you had the 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 Dutch provinces. Uh, as long as the provinces were Dutch, they would just keep rebelling. But if you get their population under 5,000 by having the pop-up rebels kill the rebels, pop-up rebels kill the rebels, you could send a colonist there, and the colonists would make them Spanish. End of rebellion. And, I mean, I ended up doing that. Completely ahistorical. Well, maybe not. I mean, I'm sure maybe, maybe Philip really did want to put all the Dutch to the sword. I'm sure he wanted to sometimes. Uh, but that was, I mean, like the example you cited... The mechanics of generating rebellions leads to, frankly, horrible genocidal policies in a lot of these uh, games, which might be historical. I mean, the Germans and the, I mean, the Romans were not afraid to, to genocide. They were generally quite respectful of their conquered peoples, unless they were in, in, in many circumstances, but they also were not afraid to depopulate entire regions. Um, Germans... Germanics weren't exactly major conquerors, but they probably would have done the same. Carthaginians were happy depopulating places. Um, the Assyrians would just move populations from place to place and burn entire cities to the ground. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it actually, you know, it may be historically appropriate. But there are, if the rebellions are just there to either to be a block or make your job superficially hard, then you will find the easiest way to get rid of this nuisance. And that means who will rid me of these troublesome ethnic minorities? Right. And your combination of Henry II and Hitler, you know, running around uh, the countryside, depopulating cities because you need those armies someplace else because they take away f- because they distract from uh, the stuff you would rather be doing in the game. You know, though, this this is actually something that I, I always sort of wonder is. One of my professors in college was always fond of saying that 
as long as 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 long as the PLA is ready to roll over protesters in Tiananmen Square, you don't have a democratic revolution reform. Like what brings down empires is that eventually the people who control the guns lose their willingness to shoot. Yeah. Um, and as long as there's, as long as you have this sort of amoral ruthlessness or, or, or true belief in, in, in the cause is strong enough that really like the, the, the crackdown is always the most effective policy. Like if you're just willing to kill and kill and kill, you stay in power. And I've always kind of wondered whether or not like for as crude as these systems are and the fact they don't model the fact that most people aren't genocidal killing machines, uh, and, and you can't make them into genocidal killing machines really, uh, without a lot of other things being in place uh you know the, the are these games sort of like hinting at oh really it's really it's 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 just the fact that you know most great empires are simply not willing to be monstrous enough to maintain order i've always sort of wondered if there's a little bit of like a you know maybe intentional or not maybe a bit of a sly challenge uh to to sort of our belief about you know when it comes to rebellion i think there there tends to be an idea of that you know People identify with that uh, Princess Leia quote, right, from from the Death Star, where she's like, you know, the tighter you squeeze, the more systems will, you know, uh, yeah. slip through your grasp. And I've always, you know, I'm not sure that's true. Uh, and I've always sort of wondered if, if games like this always send that up a little bit. I mean, I think historically that is actually the case. I mean, there have been most empires have been built on blood, um, and the quashing of rebellions and. You know, just lining up muskets and shooting who's ever there. I mean, I think you could argue the turning point in the Indian campaign for um, independence was the was the Amritsar massacre when the British soldiers on the ground realized, wait, this doesn't work anymore. Somehow norms have changed since the last time we shot a bunch of Indians, uh, which people are actually carrying now. Um, things, the types of police actions that used to be effective, you know, going into a square, lining up some machine guns, and just shooting everybody there, that sort of policy didn't work anymore. Uh, it didn't work on the global stage, it didn't work domestically, uh, politicians no longer thought it was legitimate, though maybe 30 years before they would have thought it was just fine, you know, to disrupt a political rally with... Uh, massacres and gunfire. Um, and I think that, you know, really before the modern age, this was the way that uh, many rebellions uh, and protests were put down. Now, it's I know that in... Um, it's interesting the places where it really isn't um, the case. For example, I look at... You look at um, Civilization V, where happiness is entirely tied to this consumer model yeah. of happiness. And I, a, you know, which it's really a 20, 20th, late 20th, 21st century understanding of what keeps a population or a country happy. And it is, you know, it, it is uh, dies and circuses. Now, can you bring me, where's the, where, where's the gem? Where are the gems coming in? Where are the furs? Like, it's like some empire designed by Zsa Zsa Gabor, uh, where happiness is entirely based on coliseums and plays, which is, and, luxury resources, which were introduced in uh, Civilization Three, which is a different way of understanding happiness, and you can't control that with uh, the police. You know, the police can't, you can't put a soldier, you can't, because there are, there's a limit to one soldier per tile for one reason, but you can't put, a, put someone on garrison duty 
and say, well, he's in garrison, therefore the city is going to be happier. You can't get a plus one uptick in happiness uh, based on a soldier sitting in a city. You can for religion if you choose certain religious ideas. Uh, but I don't think there's any garrison bonus in any of the ideas. Oh, for unless happiness. you consider the honor barracks uh, bonus okay, right. as being the equivalent, right? That's, That's right. kind of the right. soldiers make people right. happy. If you have, if, if you choose the idea, if you choose, if you have a culture that respects soldiers, then yeah, you're right. Uh, and that's one I choose sometimes. But generally, it's a very consumer model of happiness. It's not based on uh, much, but and really the most important thing is how many goods can you get shipped into your country, especially in the early going, where you only have access to a few happiness generating buildings. Um, and these happen. This type. This is. These aren't the types of rebellions in Civ Five that can bring a city down. They can't bring a culture down. But in Brave New World, they did introduce rebellions that could. And I'm still not entirely sure how these mechanics work, so you may have to run through this for me. It's in the ideology part. Mm-hmm. Where if you're following one ideology and the rest of the world's following different ideologies, or there's a division of ideologies, some ideologies may gain so much power and popularity that the lesser ideologies will have discontent and if they're also unhappy empires, they could spawn soldiers defect, rebellions pop up, cities can flip. I mean, in Civ Four, cities flip because of culture. In Civ Five, cities flip because of ideological reasons. It doesn't happen a lot, but I've seen it happen two or three times. And there it seems to make sense who they're flipping to. They're always flipping to somebody really far away, it seems, uh, and based on the ideology. I'm not quite sure how that works. Can you explain that to me? You know, not so. I haven't seen it happen that much because basically, what what looks like it's going on to me is the first thing that has to happen is the empire has to be really badly run, like things have to be going really badly. It has to be losing money, and it has to be quite a bit of unhappiness. But then happiness is somehow generated also by discontent over the ideology. I'm not quite sure if that is tied to culture. Who decides what ideology is the popular one? Yeah, so I, I see, I think I, like the, the way I was viewing it in my head was it was more like, you know, if you had three magnets, right? Like yeah. sort of equidistant from each other, and then the, the you know you, you you increase sort of the attraction on one, and slowly like and I and I think that I think that is a I think that is a function of culture uh, as a matter of yeah. fact as, as as a measure of influence, uh, and as that happens as that culture becomes more and more influential, uh, then you start having more and more people uh, sort of attracted to that ideology uh, as as well. Right. Um, I, I think that's my understand, uh, understanding of how it works, but the thing is, for me, it's never really come up. Like even when I when I was even in the games when I was hugely influential, uh, the other ideologies were actually still trucking along pretty well. Okay. Uh, so it wasn't you know it was like I I was clearly the most influential, but they were the government was good enough that it wasn't like ideology, ideological defection was something that was happening. I, I've seen entire empires fall apart. I've seen the Russian Empire feast on itself. What happened? Because, well, the, 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 the people were free and they craved order. Uh, kind of nice for Russia <laughs> once in a while. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so they were a free country and the, half the world was an order and I was the most powerful culture power. It wasn't that close. And there was... So I was I was headed, I had a spy there. So I was watching what was going on in the capital, and they were a heavily armed 
uh, empire. But every now and then, uh, they would have soldiers defect, and they become rebels. They become barbarian units, effectively. Um, so you have these really heavily powered barbarian-type units with barbarian shield and all, uh, attacking cities, uh, pillaging, and of course they start pillaging luxuries, and that drives um, the happiness down even further. Uh, cities start flipping to rival civilizations that follow the other ideology. Um, they start losing more wars, of course, because half their army is discontent. So you have these rebellions. I mean, I've seen them. I've seen minor problems, but this was the one time I'd actually seen rebellion from within in a civilization game that I was not actively promoting. But you couldn't was, see the engine that was driving it. I couldn't see the engine that was driving. All I could see was I, I could look at the culture screen, and the culture screen would tell me, "Look, you know, here are the ideologies, and this civilization has going through discontent." And it's got a discontent score of like minus 20, and it's, it has minus, it, it's seven in the unhappiness zone, and the people are craving order, and they're following freedom, and they want to follow your thing. And it didn't go into any of the math explaining where this came from, uh, but my spy in Moscow could see you know, soldiers running around, kicking some ass, and then every now and then, you know, Nizhny Novgorod would jump to my empire or something, and it would be this really weird mechanic. This is one thing that I think civilization, especially when it gets to Civilization 5, when it gets to the modern age, I think it should be you know better about giving you like digests of the news and other empires, um, things that's going on, uh, which would kind of give you a hint as to what to watch, uh, because there just aren't enough spies to go around. Yeah, give a lot of Victoria newspaper thing. I, I, I really like the newspaper in Victoria, too. I know that Tom Chick didn't care much about it, but I really like it, because if I'm not paying attention to what's going on in Germany, because I'm managing Colombia, maybe I want to know what's going on in Germany, because they're kind of important. Um, yeah. So uh, I really like that. I think something like that that Civ could use. But there was a, it was interesting to see that disorder mechanic work at that scale. Um, yeah, I think it. Only, I cool. think that ball only gets running though if you have long, like sustained unhappiness. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I'm, I'm sure it's not something that's going to happen a lot, but I think I think that's kind of things the thing that they intended that if you don't pay attention to ideological demands and happiness and stuff, all this shit's going to happen. But I mean, the way the game's built, no human player is ever going to get in that kind of a bad situation. I think. Or they're not going to stick with the game if they do. Like if yeah. you if if you're if you're stumbling along between one and negative one happiness, you know, in the 20th century, you're probably not going to see that game through to the end. Yeah, yeah. But uh, no, it's it's you know, it's, it's civilization has this has this. You know, it's it's an interesting byproduct of the way it's been simplified. Is that instead of having this idea of these these two countervailing forces where you have happiness and then order uh you know the 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 iron fist whatever you want to call it uh you know also working to keep people in line instead of having that yeah it's just it's just pure happiness are people happy or are they not are they getting yep. are they getting their luxury needs met uh are there caught are there things that are making them unhappy and are you staying ahead of them and yeah it's just you know and, and the punishment really is you just get this this you, you get into a great malaise uh, you know, you you are you 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 are post Nixon America uh, for you know for an indeterminate amount of time until you you know build enough happy buildings. Uh, yeah. and, and you know it's it's interesting because it doesn't derail the game. It's it's no. probably a wise move from that from that angle. 
I think from the perspective of character, though, uh, I think it was it was probably a little lacking, and that's probably why they introduced uh, you know ideological attraction and and these rebellions. Yeah, I mean, look at what I mean. Civ Four had had culture. If you are a different culture from the, um, if your state was a different culture from you, that could generate unhappiness. I mean, that added some character at least, but that would eventually go away. People would eventually be assimilated. Um, this uh, consumerist model of happiness in Civ Five is certainly easier to understand. Um, and there, I know there, was, there were a lot of complaints that happiness was uh, made into this global number in the original design, and not, you know, it's just city-specific, as it always had been um, throughout Civ history, where you could have one unhappy city, and it could be a shitty unhappy city, and that would be fine. Uh, but now, you know, if you have one really unhappy city, it can drag down the entire empire. Because I know that I really ache inside when I understand that that, that, that Regina is having a bad time. So, you know, going to games that maybe flesh out uh, Rebels and Rebellion a little more. Uh, you, you brought up Victoria early. And I think before we get to E4, we, we should talk about Victoria, because I think that's yeah. really where a lot of those ideas were sort of sown. And, you know, yeah, as, as you know, I've sort of done a 180 on Victoria 2 uh, since, the, since the latest expansion. Um, and I've really come around to enjoying that game and, and, and digging how well it sort of models the story of sort of the rise of the modern, uh, the, the, the modern state. And something that was really interesting to me in Victoria was how powerless you are in some ways to, you know, st- basically, you know, stand, stand astride the, uh, stand astride the, uh, oh, what's that? What's, oh, hell. That Buckley quote, right? That is quote for what National Review would do: standing athwart uh, history and yell, yelling "stop." Yeah, uh, that's you know that's you you were really not you you really did not have it in you to do that in in Victoria. Like if you start playing as a German state uh, in, in Victoria too, German consciousness is real. Like Germans want to be Germany, and yeah. you may not want that to happen because politically you will not be the head of whatever Germany is going to be. You are going to be assimilated, and your story is done. But the fact remains that you know no matter how things are going in Bavaria, Bavarians are still Germans first, and then loyal citizens second. Uh, and you know you can you can spend you can spend your entire game basically trying to tamp that down and getting it you know putting it under wraps. But it's boy, it, it it is it is impossible to reverse that. Uh, Victoria too. Um, once again, again, I did I did some PR for that, so this is the disclaimer. It is probably my, 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 my critics hat here. It is probably the only game I can think of where the player has to put into his head, "Hey, maybe the rebels are right." Mm-hmm. Maybe the rebels are onto something. Maybe they are leading this country, and I'm not. There's this idea that you might not—you're not always in the driver's seat as the player. As just because you are the country, it doesn't mean you are history. Um, and that is kind of a unique. I mean, there are other games have kind of had sort of things like that, but then tied tied to, to, to the tech tree. If you didn't advance fast enough or reform your country fast enough compared to other countries, then you're going to be lagging behind. But that's quite different than what's going on in Victoria 2. In Victoria 2, you have rebel, rebels who have ideas and priorities that may have absolutely nothing to do with what you're doing 
or what you're not doing or with your country. It could have completely, it could be ideological, it could be national, it could be bigger than you. It is bigger than you. The world in history is bigger than you. So Victoria 2 is really the only game where there's a not just a possible, almost a certainty that you will have to follow along uh, with what sometimes the rebels want. Now, this doesn't happen for every country. For many countries, there's not going to be this huge, great national moment. You know, for the U.S., for example, yeah, the Civil War is going to happen, but you're nine times out of ten, the South is going to get crushed. Um, and that's kind of a, that's an historically inserted moment to make sure it happens. Uh, so that's quite different than German unification. But there is, but for many countries, there's going to be this push. Uh, many of the drives, and you can't get ahead of your country too far either. I mean, I'm a good old social welfare state liberal. And I, I want minimum wage now, damn it. I want to put minimum wage in in 1840. But you can't. As you, your country is not ready to do that. And if you do, then you get rebellions from the reactionaries. Uh, so I don't want to say that Victoria 2 is all a game about reacting. Because it absolutely isn't. It's a game about timing. It's a game about knowing when you are ready and reading the signs or when you have to do something before things get out of order. Or, th- or the country will just impose things on you, um, which is kind of fun. There's, there's so many things going on with that. Uh, because, yeah, on the one hand, uh, and Tom talked about this when he was on the show, there are times when there are so many sweeping reforms you need to make. Because, you know, when, whenever you're in power, whenever things are going normally, you have to be sort of, you're allowed to do one thing every what, like 10 years, like one reform, one major reform every, yeah. you know, every, every 10 years or so. And uh, really, the moment has to have arrived for that. The constituency needs to be there to get that reform through. But rebels can basically like if a revolutionary movement crops up takes power um the the nation goes on but they will enact a completely new government that maybe maybe you don't want to fight you know maybe maybe you want like maybe this is your shortcut to like modern liberal democracy congratulations you know the uh you know not only did you free the serfs but suddenly you are basically a a a modern a modern state with a professionalized military core and uh modern instruments of finance fantastic you're you're good to go um and so you have to really think like you know how sometimes it's better to let the pressure build up that's really risky because everything can blow apart in the meantime but it's an option something else i really love about that is and I realize here I'm just I'm just I'm, I'm just quoting Tom Chick in many ways because uh, because I think he's he's such a, uh, an eloquent champion for this game. But what Victoria brings home is really that reality, right? That like politics is the art of the possible. You are not fully in the driver's seat, and a lot of times you're sitting there not only thinking the rebels might be right, but in fact knowing they're right. But you're looking at the demographics and how our power is distributed in your society, and you know that you just can't you just can't grant these requests just yet you cannot seed ground on say you know you can't seed ground on the eight-hour workday you know you can't institute national health care uh you can't uh you know you you can't reduce aristocratic rights because while there is a movement afoot to make those things happen unfortunately the entrenched interests are still too strong that if you go along with that things are going to blow up in your face. You're going to get it from the other direction. You're going to have other problems cropping up as a result. And so what you end up having to do is rather cynically, you know, kick the can down the road, 
send the you know send the Cossacks in on the uh, rioters uh, time and again until that day arrives when enough of societies come around to think to say oh yeah it turns out we're really backwards and you know really we probably should have instituted these reforms twenty years ago well of course but a lot of blood has run to the gutter since then and you've known you've known this moment was coming all along you just waited for it yeah you're standing athwart history saying not yet yes yes or maybe soon or take a letter uh it's one of these it's i mean it's i glad you mentioned the idea of you know sometimes letting the rebels win because this is something that players are many ways conditioned never to let happen they so identify with especially in strategy games with the country they're running and with the control and it took me a long time to accept the fact that you know, these peons, these guys with pitchforks, these nobodies, these nothings, these Mariuses at the barricades who will die quite easily uh, might be onto something. Um, and it can get quite terrifying when you realize just how far behind you've fallen. When I've, I lost I lost a French game when the entire country just went Jacobin all at once. Just yep. went absolutely nuts. In the, this I, my army was destroyed... It was nothing I could do about it. Uh, we had a review event for Europa Universalis 4 uh, earlier this month, and uh, I was playing at one of the... We had a, a brief multiplayer session so that some of the media who hadn't had a chance to play multiplayer could see how it worked. And to pitch in and help one of the new media guys, I kind of joined in on one of his wars so we could see how that worked, not noticing my stability was already sucked and I had signed a truce with this guy, so my stability fell to minus three. Oops. And all of a sudden, there are rebels everywhere but one of them is 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 this pretender and looking at him saying oh my god he's a three five six i want this guy to be my king but he won't i I can't just give him the why can't i just give him the throne so i have to sit there and wait and wait and wait for him to take over my country meanwhile the ukraine's splitting off and you know the Czechs kind of want to have some autonomy. So I, I pay off the Czechs and my prestige drops to the bottom and I give the Ukraine independence because I just can't have my soldiers getting killed all the time because it's still a very dangerous... Eastern Europe's kind of dangerous. You can't just send your army out killing rebels constantly. And I'm just waiting for this pretender to take over. So in many ways, I am betraying my own country and I'm playing this king, but I want to give up. It's this odd mechanic where you are looking at what do the rebels want? Does it make sense to give it to them? Does it make sense to give it to them now? So the rebels become, in the latest two last two Paradox games, not opponents as much as extensions of the national consciousness. Yeah, and they're really effective as... They're, they're really effective at creating new points of friction in yes. international relations. Certainly, more so in Victoria, but even a little bit yep. in, in EU4 as well, where in Victoria, people don't assimilate real happily or real easily. Like, Czechs remember their Czechs, and no amount of, you know, lording it over them as Germans is going to change that. They are going to remain Czech. They're going to remain... Uh, they're going to have national aspirations. And... The interesting thing that happens in Victoria is that that message can actually be carried to the international community. Victoria's got this, introduced this concept of international conscience. And 
rebel factions can play on sympathy for that. You, if you're just this bloody hand dictator, it's actually bad for you. You really do have to be measured in your responses, and you really have to think hard about whether it's really worth keeping those factories, that tax base, uh, those people, uh, that, that, that pool of manpower. Is it really worth all that if you're going to become this pariah state that is continually like looking over its shoulder at these nationalist movements? Uh, and in EU4, you have something similar in that, um, you know, when I was, when I was fighting, when I was fighting the Russians, uh, you know, I, yeah, I, I'd won the war, but the rebels were murder. Uh, it, it just went because there's too much Russia the, 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 the my army would move on. And then eventually the Russians would be like, no, to hell with this, throw off these Turkish shackles and rejoin mother Russia. Uh, and, and I couldn't, I couldn't make it stop. Uh, eventually I managed to get a good piece, but it, it was one of those things where, um, you know, long after I'd taken Hungarian provinces, uh, rebels were seizing those provinces again and clamoring to rejoin Hungary. Uh, and God help you. If a, if you allow rebels from a nationality without a nation, uh, take a province because suddenly everyone who was hoping that, you know, the, the, that the state of Iraq would form, uh, now has, now has a point, a, a point to rally around and it doesn't matter what else is happening. Iraq exists. It's, it's, it's there suddenly out of nowhere, all because you didn't get to relieve a siege in time. And they keep generating new rebels. They aren't just, you know, a one and done, uh, situation. Um, so they do kind of, match history a little bit more interestingly. I mean, rebels are... The paradox games are kind of unique. There really aren't many other... Uh, well, first of all, they're unique because not a lot of other companies have the resources to make games uh, like that. I'm trying to think of other... I mean, here's another... I mean, if I think of what the role-playing equivalent would be, or even the war game equivalent, that would be m- morale. I've been playing a lot of um, Conquistador Expedition. I've talked quite a bit about that. And this is a game where your soldiers have morale. And one of the big tricks is, I mean, you want to keep a good, strong conquistador squad together with all the skills you'll need to take out the Aztecs, but you have to manage your troops' morale, otherwise they will mutiny. So it's a very small-scale RPG-type problem, but they are tied to strategic decisions. For example, your priest might be really religious, so if you have free thinkers in your party who are skeptical and are always asking questions and want you to treat enemy gods with respect, your priests could lose morale. If, you're, if you have a, your, your, your greedy soldiers will want you to pillage and constantly bring in new treasure. Otherwise, they could lead mutinies if you don't satisfy that. So you have to balance these strategic goals um, and because you have things you need to do, you need to feed your troops, you need to have good soldiers, make sure they level up appropriately and get the right training um, to fight these battles. But you also need to do this really delicate balancing act of making sure everybody's with the program. Um, it can lead to some kind of uh, old-fashioned Bioware, you know, a little bit of good, a little bit of bad, I'm doing just fine. Uh, sort of thing. How many negative things can I do and still stay on the good side? Uh, sort of stuff, which is, you know, not the best way to do moral calculus in either an RPG or a strategy game, but it's the same sort of idea, and it's something that I'd like to see uh, tactical games, large scale tactical games that have persistent squads kind of deal with. This idea that 
they're if you have all these soldiers, you know, some of them and they're mercenaries. I mean, conquistadors are basically mercenaries. I mean, think of what jagged alliance would be if the soldiers had nice personalities and didn't always get along, and right. one of them wanted to be one of them wanted to be the leader. You know, uh, wanted to either overthrow you or thought he was better. You know, do you want to captain the ship, sort of stuff, uh, and. I think that can play into some strategic calculation as well. And that's kind of a minor, low-level version of this uh, sort of dealing. But it's kind of the same idea because you have to think, what do these people want? What is the minimum it would take them to not stab me in the back? And in civilization, it is, you know, they want gold. Uh, In... Europa Universalis, it's, okay, I'll give you guys a tax break if you'll just shut up for a while. I'll take the prestige shit and give you the tax break until my missionaries can come back and convert all you suckers to the Orthodox Church like you goddamn well belong. Um, So there's a lot of this weighting and balancing, and I think a really good rebel system in a strategy game, I'm thinking of, you know, if there's another Galactic Civilizations game, for example, or another Masters of Orion uh, the type of game that has, I mean, what, think of the Bajorans and the Cardassians, I guess. Mm-hmm. If you th- you know, there's, there's very rare, rarely a sense that, I mean, you conquer this planet and there's very rarely a huge sense that this planet is going to be a persistent problem. It's, you know, you just sit and you wait a lot of the time. Uh, it'd be nice that if, it would be nice if this, our science fiction worlds kind of embraced the best of you know, the science fiction of the last 20 years, or television science fiction at least, from, you know, uh, the the Narn and Centauri War and Babylon 5, and that legacy of resistance that fueled that conflict, or, you know, the, the, the DS9, which I think is highly overrated, but that's... that's I will cut you. Me. Yeah, well, you don't like Babylon 5, so to hell with you. Uh, so uh, there's... I, th- I think you know that's really. I think that's where we need to push the next science fiction uh, strategy game. It should be less about building huge fleets. Uh, I mean, you can build huge fleets. You got to have huge fleets. Got to have huge, awesome spaceships. But less about actually designing those goddamn spaceships. <laughs> less oh about, yeah. But <laughs> less about giving me all of these military techs. Hey, you've got a brand new laser. Want to redesign your cruiser again? No, I do not want to redesign my cruiser again. I want to press a button and say upgrade cruiser. Yeah. At, at the very most. Last thing I want to do is build a whole new damn cruiser. If it takes me three turns to retrofit a whole fleet, fine. I'm in goddamn space. I have enough engineers. Otherwise, it wouldn't be in space. Uh, but if we could push, I think there's a lot of possibilities because the range, if you look at the faction diversity we've seen in games like Master of Orion and Sword of the Stars and uh, Galsiv, uh, once the expansions added some variety to it, this is where I think the value added will be. It will be in giving the empires more personality, and that will mean adding more internal dynamics to the empires. And for so many strategy games, and we could, talk, we could, I mean, we could have talked about city builders as well, because so many city builders have riots and elections and the sorts of things of managing discontent. Um, Cliff Harris's Democracy 3 will be coming out very shortly. And that's often about how do you manage a population and not just keep it from voting you out of power, but keep it from rioting. Uh, sort of stuff, and that's going to be an exciting uh, game. We have Paradoxes East versus West coming out sometime 
next year. Uh, so there's another game that will have the modern era. And we'll have nationalist revolts through the 60s. It'll be interesting to see how we do that. I, haven't, I don't know how we're going to do that yet. Um, but I think for science fiction, this is something that would make a science fiction game kind of interesting. If you're going to give the races personality, have those personalities continue into these national or galactic causes. Yeah, and something else I think is just... Rebellion shouldn't be something that can be totally and utterly extinguished. It, it like, and this actually goes to a, a, a broader a, a broader theme in strategy gaming. I think, which is just that total victory. Victory should not look like running the table. Victory should not look like everything just re- you know went your way. There is no category in which you did not dominate. Which is kind of how it often feels, is that you've kind of constructed this utopia that has no real problems. What I like about an effective rebel mechanic, like uh, effective rebel designs that you see in uh, Europe, European Versalis or, uh, or or Victoria, or it sounds like you know it's how a discontent in um, Expeditions Conquistador, is that a lot of this stuff is far more interesting if it becomes a point of compromise, if it becomes a trade-off you have to make. And you're going to carry that forward. And you might ch- adjust the balance of that trade-off, but it's never fully going to go away. And that's actually far more interesting, because if it's just, I just got to exterminate every last one of these rebels, then you then it's just whack-a-mole. Then it's just going to be really boring. Then it's, then it's, and, and it's going to be, it's also going to be a little mean-spirited, but primarily it's going to be just kind of boring to go through that. But if you're doing something like, you know, uh, you know, where where my game is the Ottomans ended up was I started out as this like, you know, ultra religious Sunni um crusader power. And then eventually, because I wanted to tech up and everything, I just like became the most unpious apostate Muslim kingdom, you know, in the world. And all my province started converting. I couldn't convert them back because nobody in my empire really believed a damn thing anymore. Um, and it became, you know, it just wasn't worth cracking down on. It was just, you know, we were we were going to become a more pluralistic society, and the worst thing I could do was try to enforce homogeneity uh, via, you know, r- religious identity because I just didn't. It, it, the cost for doing that would just be would just be too high that it, you couldn't just like you know get the best parts of having people believe devoutly in the, in your cause and then not have the costs that come with being narrow-minded and parochial i love i'd love that sort of thing and your, your example of like the cardassians and bajorans is another good one where like subject peoples and overlords those Neither it's very rare that one completely wins out. Their 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 stories become you know sort of told in tandem. They're, they they don't exist without reference to each other uh, for a long time, and that's 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 really the stuff of of great storytelling. It's it's the stuff of great storytelling in, in strategy games, uh, and it's something that you know with certainly paradox is, is doing really interesting stuff with, and uh, you know it, it is it, like you said it is. Sort of the next frontier, and I think I think sci-fi games especially need to look at this because yeah, it, it is such a way to create this idea of a world that exists beyond the spreadsheets and uh, you know um, you know military uh, the, the spreadsheets and battlefields basically. Uh, I, I think that's it, it's really invaluable for creating that sense that this is this is a world that you that you are existing in, uh, not just you know not just managing. It's um. Yeah, right. Rebels are. I mean, I like your idea of the idea that they don't always, um, 
that the rebel problems don't always go away. There's a compromise, this thing, but there should also be a chance that, you know, if you give a little bit, that they just want more. Um, it'd be nice if the rebels, there was a certain, some rebels might have, might be much more demanding. They're based on their size or based on their leadership. Uh, you know, for the rebels, I like how, you know, some rebels have, might have, might have, and the ones in Victoria don't have a whole lot of personality. They're not in leaders. But, you know, the rebels in EU4, they get, like, military leaders, some of whom can just absolutely destroy you. Uh, no matter what general you put in the field. And, you know, this is, these are the types of people who just will not stop until they get it. It'd be nice if the quality of the leader helped directed the aims of uh, the goal and the aims of the movement. But that's probably asking for way too much because we are still making really small progress uh, from, you know, design to design and game to game. Uh, the last thing that occurred to me was just... Mm-hmm. Um, Another interesting example, just I wanted to you know give a nod to it was because we bashed a little total, we've done a little total war bashing, but in Shogun I think they did a really good job um, of making it so that characters you came to rely on could turn traitor. They could just stop. They they could realize you know what, you know why why am I serving you uh, when I'm when I'm this great general? And so occasionally you see a bit of this in Crusader Kings too, but occasionally you yeah. have characters sort of crop up that because of the things you've done with them and to them. Yeah. Um, they became a threat and they became aware of their own ability to become a threat. And it was an interesting trade off. The whole thing of, of, of traitors is kind of almost separate from rebels, but it, it is an, a neat little parallel because the Crusader Kings is a good, a good example you mentioned where, you know, you have, there are rebels, but the rebels are the annoying little red bannered people you crush. Those are your rebels. There are nothing, they're a pain in the ass. And they can loot a province, but they don't do anything. You really have to worry about traitors. You really have to worry about your lords who are on your side saying, eh, forget it, I want to be independent. And they aren't called rebels, they're called traitors uh, in the game. And I think that's I think that's an important, it's an important distinction how you're supposed to understand them. Yeah. That, that they, they stand against you. They don't represent anybody but themselves. Um, and, and Shogun, but they do represent and, the ordered society that produced them. Absolutely. They're certainly, you know, they're certainly made by their culture and certainly made by the rules of that culture. And I think, you know, you're right that um, in Total War, I was always, you know, there's, you kind of have the, the, this tall poppy thing going on. Um, you don't want to let anybody get too strong. Uh, but you also need your good generals. So it's about this balancing act of you know, when's somebody going to turn. Um, Republic of Rome, kind of the Avalon Hill board game, kind of has something like that going on. Where there's this, but it's, I mean, it's all players, all human players. There's no AI here, and the biggest enemy of you all is the Roman people. So you have to cooperate to keep the Roman people down and happy. But that means, which sometimes means you have to trust one of the other players to not take advantage of any situation you're giving him to put the people down. So there's this c- continual trade-off of favors because, and most games are lo- that are lost in, in Republic of Rome are not lost to another player, but are lost to the mob, are lost to the city, lost to the populace, because the cooperation breaks down because of distrust. Uh, so it is about, I mean, you want your and your opponent across the table might have Julius Caesar as a card, and you might want to use his Caesar to, you know, fight in Pontus against Mithridates. But if you do that, Caesar gets too powerful, so maybe you'll send uh, one of the Lucullus along instead. Maybe he'll be good enough, maybe he won't. 
Um, and that runs the risk of losing that war, which dissatisfies the people. So there's this continual trade-off. Um, and I think I mean, Shogun has AI people doing that, where do I want how, how many soldiers can I give my best general? And at what point do I strip his army away from him? Um, EU Rome had sort of something like that, where you couldn't just where you couldn't take loyal soldiers away uh, from a general, which really, really sucked half the time couldn't disband an army full of soldiers who weren't loyal to the Republic. Um, so there's this, I, the idea of, of, of actual traitors within a nation is really kind of neat um, and be done well or done poorly, but you're right to single out Shogun for a number of reasons, uh, but especially for that. Yeah, it's it's sort of a simple distillation, right? Of, you know, it's just the case of one character becomes aware of this, but it's yep. you can see more advanced versions of it. Yeah, in, in Republic of Rome, uh, in, in Crusader Kings, where for a variety of reasons, people start to have ambitions beyond their station, or maybe the exact correct amount of ambition given their abilities. <laughs> uh, and you just have to sort of deal with that reality. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know how many stories I've heard at this point of people discovering their air poisoned them in Crusader Kings and just being like, well, good boy. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I think that does it for our discussion of uh, rebels and revolutionaries for today. I do feel this is a topic that uh, there's probably more to say about, particularly if we spend a little more time on, on board games. I think Re uh, Republic of Rome would be, uh, you know, Archipelago, uh, another example where the slaves can cause trouble. Yeah, just the, I, I think there's a lot of interesting ideas out there, and especially if you can have sort of the collaborative mechanics uh, yeah. that you can have in a board game that just don't exist in in PC games at large. Uh, so for now, though, we'll we'll leave it there for a discussion of you know focusing on PC strategy games. Uh, yeah, it's 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 an interesting topic, and I, I'm if I, you know there's one thing I find encouraging. It's that I think just like you know, boy, five, ten years ago, uh, even five years ago, there really were not that many interesting things happening with rebels and why people were rebelling and how these things were modeled. And then uh, really a lot of it, you know, a lot of it in paradox, but also creative assembly sort of hitting on some hitting on some strong ideas. Uh, suddenly there's there's a lot more nuance uh, to how, how this topic has been handled uh, in the past. And I don't know, maybe maybe the time is right for a game that basically does focus on the challenge of keeping your people in line. Yeah, and we didn't, we didn't even mention Tropico and how useless those troubles were. Well, I did have them kill me once, so not I've... entirely useless. Oh, really? You lost yeah. the rebels? Wow. I really... Um, I went all in on tourism, and then tourism just went belly up, and there was no recovering from it. And uh, then the first rebel attack took out a lot of my police force. So, you know, you win some, you lose some. Some days, El Presidente standing in the bush with a forty-five, popping rounds <laughs> off at a mob of AK-wielding uh, commies. So, you know, uh, sometimes that happens. I guess. It's pretty cool when it does. <laughs> it, it's, it's nice when Tropico surprises you. doesn't happen that often, but when it does, it's actually quite a great game. All right, so that does it for our discussion of Rebels and Revolutionaries. Uh, this has been Three Moves Ahead. Until next week, good night. Nice seeing you again.